Dear Christ Central, if you have your Bibles, it'll also be projected overhead. We're in the book of Psalms today, Psalm 42, first five verses and verse 11. And as we go through this finding and following Jesus with all kinds of feelings, today it's about depression, depression, why me? So let's give our attention to this, uh, God's word. Verse one, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night. While they say to me all the day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out, as I pour out my soul. How I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God. With glad shouts and songs of praise. A multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. Verse 11. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. This is God's word so far. Well, this psalmist is evidently suffering from something. <laughs> Why are you cast down? Why are you cast down? Why is my soul in such turmoil? We can safely say he is suffering from depression. He's suffering from depression. And we want to learn and join with the psalmist as he leads the way in how he dealt with this depression. Uh, in my pastoral ministry experience, I've been asked for book recommendations on various different topics, but a general recommendation is, you know, pastor, what kind of book would you recommend? And of all the books I've ever recommended for the last 20-some years, the one that tops the list, hands down, is by the Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a series of sermons entitled Spiritual Depression, not only because of the wonders it did for me and continues to do so to this day, but how many fellow Christian believers I find go through depression themselves. So if this is unfamiliar with you, this is already such a downer for you, this topic, and you want to check out, please try to hang in there. If you're not going through depression now, I assure you, you will at some point. It's part of our whole growth. It's part of the reality of fallen life. But if you are going through this right now, you have gone through it, this psalm is for you. It's a gift from God. We want to learn with and join the psalmist in that constant chorus Hope in God, hope in God, hope in God. I will remember him, my salvation, and my God. We're going to look at the condition of depression. Second, possible causes. And third, it's cures. Okay, so condition. Today's a three-part, real easy. Condition, possible causes, and a couple cures. Listen to the psalmist. Here's how he expresses his depression. Like a deer panting for water for living streams, like a creature dying of thirst, panting. If the deer never arrives at a source of water, the deer will die. Spiritually speaking, the psalmist is saying, I feel like that. 
the condition of depression in the insides is, I'm dying and wasting away. I am thirsty. Thirsty. You can extend that and understand it as, the psalmist hasn't lost faith in God. <clears throat> this is not about him wrestling with whether I should continue to believe in God or not. There's plenty of psalms that talk about that. This is about, I've lost all my senses and taste buds and enjoyment of God. I'm dying. My senses are dull. I can't see him. I can't feel him. I can't touch him. I don't think God is close. I don't think God cares. I don't think God is very real and palpable to me right now. This is the kind of condition the psalmist is speaking of. In verse 7, which we did not read, he says, deep calls to deep. The imagery of the depths of water is always a negative one throughout the scriptures. And when, if and when, God forbid, you are drowning, that is an overwhelming sensation. It is an all-consuming panic type of situation. Along with his senses feeling like they're dull and he's dying of thirst for the palpable, real enjoyment and presence of God, depression also robs a lot of hope because you feel like you can't control it. It's overwhelming. It's consuming. It feels like drowning. Now, it is often the case that depression throughout the Psalms is connected with Sin and the guilt of my sin and the shame of my sin. There are plenty of psalms that talk like that. Plenty of psalms that may apply to you better than Psalm 42 today. If there is some known sin that you have just not confessed or repented of, you're just in active rebellion, other psalms would tell you the depression you feel right now is just one of the fallouts of that sin. But not this psalm. Here, this depression has nothing to do with any known sin. It's not connected to any guilt of sin. Here's how we know that. Look at verse 2 again. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? When is the last time that you were in active sin where your soul ached to worship God? When was the last time that you were in some known sin, but you actually desired and wanted to pray? Who does that? I don't think anybody really does that. Because if and when we sin, we want something else more than God. But here in Psalm 42, he wants God above all else. There is no known sin, but you still can be depressed. You still can be depressed. As a lead pastor, one of the difficult lonely parts of my job is it's hard to admit certain things. And this is one of them. I, as far as I know, I'm not depressed right now, but about five or six years ago, I definitely went through a year-long, maybe a season of depression. And it's hard to admit you're depressed because if you're positioned to leadership, you're really, really, really concerned about how it affects other people. And in fact, I've even been told, you know, Harold, you might bring down the morale or mood of other people. And that's true. It's part of leadership. But maybe the more threatening sign is I grew up in certain church environments that if you're depressed and you admit it, and you really talk about it, people secretly start to think and assume, well, you must be doing something wrong. You see, you must be in some known sin. 
If it's not physiological, yes, there's physiological, which needs medical treatment and medication and care. That is all by the hand of God, by the way. But if it's not physiological, a lot of people just assume that it must be spiritual, it must be some sin. So it's hard to admit it. But not this psalmist. He leads in public worship with this song about depression. And he gets so vivid and detailed about it. Because in one verse, what does he say? My tears have been my food all day and all night. I have been weeping, 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 seemingly uncontrollably, continually. It feels like I can't create it or command it to go away. This is the condition of depression. Here's some possible causes. Possible causes. Back to the good doctor who became a pastor, Martin Lloyd-Jones, straight from his series of sermons. The first possible cause that Martin Lloyd-Jones mentions, which brought a load of insight and comfort to my college soul, is not go pray some more, is not read the Bible more. It's this. It could be your temperament and physical condition. If you're suffering from depression, it could be you should check out your physical makeup. Now, overly spiritual types can say, Harold, my physical conditioning, health or lack of health, my strength or weakness, all of that, what does that have to do with my matters of salvation, my spiritual life? And yes, listen to me close. In you beginning a spiritual life with Jesus, for you to get loved by Jesus, saved by Jesus, forgiven by Jesus, for you to be converted to become a Christian, your physical makeup has no, no bearing. It makes no difference at all. Your physiology, your psychology, your grades, your work, your income, your lineage, and most of all, your morality. Your morality does not get in the way of Jesus beginning a new forever life for you. It has nothing to do with it. Ah, but... You can start and become a Christian believer completely independent of your physical makeup, which makes no difference whatsoever, but uh, in your Christian life now and you're experiencing growth after that, of course your temperament and physical condition plays a role. Here's our Martin Lloyd-Jones observes. Here's what he observed. Does anyone hold the view that as long as you're a Christian, it doesn't matter what the condition of your body is? You'll soon be disillusioned if you believe that. If you recognize that the physical may be partly responsible for the spiritual condition and make allowances for this, you'll be better able to deal with these spiritual issues. Plainly put, temperament and physical condition-wise, there are just some of us more prone to depression. There are some of us just more prone to physical illness and weakness. There are some of us in our temperament who are prone to deal and struggle with certain things in our Christian life that others may not struggle as much as, but yet they're going to struggle with other things that you may not struggle with. Some of the greatest Christians and saints throughout all of history till today that I know of are generally melancholy or depressed. Look at verse 3, once again. My tears have been my food day and night while they say to me all day long, where is your God? Sounds to me that the psalmist is admitting to at least he's not eating much. He hasn't been eating much. The only thing he's been eating is salty tears. 
certainly we can assume he's not sleeping much. He's not getting good night's rest here, is he? Because all night, all day, he's crying. Is he out at the beach, at the gym, exercising? Doesn't sound like it. I don't know which one comes first, but I don't think we have to distinguish that. One of the first and foremost causes of depression, spiritual depression, just might be our physical condition. Charles Spurgeon, one of the greatest Baptist preachers out there, his eloquence was just mind-blowing. He suffered from gout. That's a very painful thing. I had a little bouts with it too. Some of you who have it, man, pray for comfort and relief upon you. Well, Charles Spurgeon had gout. He ended up dying from it. And he was known to be depressed. You would never know him at the pulpit to be depressed, but go read his journals before he got up to the pulpit. He said he suffered from poor diet, exercise, overworked, 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 overthought. And he was just deeply exhausted much of his life. You see, you cannot sever your physical body from your soul, although some of us would like to do that. And when we are physically weak, we are prone to more depression and all sorts of temptations and attacks. For example, when did Satan choose to tempt and attack Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who came to save the world? When did Satan find it most opportune and strategic to go after Jesus, the perfect, sinless God-man, so that if and when he sins, he would fail to save the world? It was after Jesus fasted. It was when he was in the desert alone. He was hungry and thirsty. He was physically tapped out and weak. This might be the first possible cause. And so, in many, many ways, my dear brothers and sisters, your depression is not just remedied or diagnosed just by purely spiritual criteria. Take a look at your physical health. Here's second. Here's second. Verse four. These things I remember. I remember as I pour out my soul how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God. It sounds like he's like Mike Jung and James Coe and David Ha, worship leaders. I would go with the throng and lead people of God in glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. He was the party thrower. He's a worship leader. But he says, I remember that once. But he's not experiencing that now. You see, the second possible cause is a breakdown or loss of community. A breakdown of community. David the psalmist was once regularly with God's people in worship in the southern part of Israel, but now he's up north for whatever reason, and he finds himself separated and isolated. I do believe this one hurts more. Your physical condition, of course, does affect your depression, but relational fallouts, lack of reconciliations, marital strife, close friends of even at churches not being able to love and forgive one another, this, oh yes, this, can cause a kind of spiral that the psalmist is experiencing here. You know, David Brainerd was a young missionary 
who spent most of his life in solitude, traveled alone, lived alone in the mission field for Native Americans, and he longed for community. In one of his diary journal entries, April 26, 1745, here's what he recorded. In the evening was visited by a dear Christian friend with whom I spent an hour or two in conversation on the very soul of religion. There are many with whom I can talk about religion, but alas, I find few with whom I can talk religion itself. My soul loves the people of God, and especially the ministers of Jesus Christ who feel the same trials that I do. There is amazing refreshment and relief that come from intimate community with people who deeply do want to love and desire Jesus. By the way, God always has a great sense of humor. The journal entries by David Brainerd, who ended up marrying one of Jonathan Edwards, the Jonathan Edwards, one of his daughters, she contracted actually a disease from him and she died. The father, Jonathan Edwards, known to be one of the most brilliant philosophers and theologians and writers America's ever produced. His best-selling book of all time, best-selling textbook of all time, was nothing written by himself. It was by David Brainerd. And so the life and diary of David Brainerd became the all-time bestseller by Jonathan Edwards, not written by him. You can go check this out as well. Because you want to talk about a saint, a sincere, true believer who is melancholy all the time? That's David Brainerd. But why do you think it sells out? First possible cause, temperament, physical condition. Second, loss or breakdown of community. Here's third, here's third. Disappointments with God. Disappointments with God. They say to me all the day long, verse 3, where is your God? Are some of you being misunderstood at work or in that club or in that gathering, that social gathering? Are some of you being looked down on or looked at funny because they figure out you're a Christian? Do you feel marginalized? Maybe even mocked. That's what the enemies of the psalmist were doing. Where is your God? Where is your God? You're so depressed. Where is he? And I want to assure you, my friend, I want you to be finding tremendous divine supernatural comfort because it came straight from the mouth of Jesus. Blessed are those who are persecuted for my sake. Blessed are those who take any malignment or mockery for Jesus' sake. But that is a disappointment and it's painful. You might be losing an intimate relationship, a boyfriend or girlfriend over this. Who knows? But to follow Jesus, it may cost that, to pick up the cross and follow Jesus. But that's a disappointment. Things don't go your way. People you trusted let you down. You don't think this is the best way, but you're disappointed. Verse 9, which we didn't read, it becomes a full-on outcry. God, where are you? His enemies used to tell David, where is your God? But then it becomes internal, and now he feels it himself in verse 9. God, where are you? Disappointments can come, and they will come. Big ones, small ones. Obvious ones, imperceptible ones. Sometimes they pile up over time. If you're not good with that spiritually, 
You don't know what to do with that spiritually. They will just pile up like trash inside your soul. And what kind of stink and toxicity do you think that's going to produce? I mean, let me say that again. If you have disappointments that's just stacking up and you have no idea how to throw that out, you have no idea what to do with that spiritually. What do you think that is going to do? The stink in your soul. And that stink will come out. These disappointments that pile up or just come out of nowhere. And even more surprising, I have even found, and I found in the scriptures, do you know you can have the greatest disappointments or letdowns after the greatest highs? So beware. I mean, listen, listen close, my friends, on this one. When you start inching through in your marriage that it starts to actually get more healthy and spiritual, you better watch out. When you assume a new position of service or leadership for the kingdom of God and for Jesus' sake, you better watch out. Hey, Harold, when you're coming back from that conference or a revival or retreat and you feel like you poured out your life and love and you gave from your heart and then you feel hungry and thirsty that next night, Harold, you better watch out what you do with yourself. You know the prophet Elijah literally brought down fire from heaven on a mountaintop. And he defeated and defied 450 prophets of Baal. Elijah was used by God to bring down fire. And then just go read the rest of the story right there. Moments later, obvious psychological, physical, emotional letdown. You find him with no community. You find that his temperament, physical condition, he must be exhausted. Probably did an all-nighter, and he had to walk and travel a long time. The Bible tells us, after one of the greatest miraculous revivals or episodes of God coming down through a prophet, it reads, Elijah didn't want to go on living. Elijah hit rock bottom. That's depression. But here's how wonderful and gracious our God is. You know what God did for his prophet, his servant? He sent him food through the birds of the air. He needs food. There you go, physical condition. And he sent him a company of angels. Physical and social. They're all gifts of God. And it can cure a depressed soul. Disappointments, disappointments. Here's a fourth. The devil himself. The devil himself. It was C.S. Lewis who did observe, right, the most effective strategy of the devil and our scientific, we're so smart, we're so savvy in modern West is uh, to just make a believe that he does not exist. Uh, that if that's what the devil has done in your life, um, yeah, you, you have no chance. You got no shot. Do you know what the devil sounds like? Do you know what the devil does? Do you know how the devil influences and shapes you and wrecks your life? Do you know that the devil could be doing that right now, like hook, line, and sinker, but you just don't even notice it? 
And that would be the best way for the devil to take me down, is to just come on top of me and never make me feel or sense that it's him. The devil uses half-truths, God's word, common principles, good things, good sayings, good morals. He can just use anything. And all he has to do is just kind of combine it and make it sound somewhat sophisticated and twist it just a little bit, as long as it has a 1% ounce of falsehood to taint the whole thing. And he just makes you believe it. Put it in a different way. The devil's main tactic against Christian believers is to get you to believe him, not the word of God. So if and when you sin, the devil will make you listen to and believe, don't get up. If and when you royally sin, hey, look at you. Look at the guilt. The devil will want to crucify you again and again and again. Even for a Christian believer, although Jesus was crucified once and for all. The devil will come along and whisper and make you believe, if you ever come clean and talk about this problem, not only will God not love you, there is no one in the church who would ever love you and accept you now. That's shame. If you're coasting and just doing perfectly well right now, you kids can't believe the kind of bonuses or stocks you're getting now. The devil will come to you and say, man, you are a rock star. This is all about you. You're doing so well. Keep it up. There are those of you in this room who feel like giving up. Just give up. Just give up. Don't get back up. Give up. Stay down. Stay down. Stay down. Don't get back up. I assure you, any message that takes away hope in God, hope in God, hope in God is not from God. Any insinuation or doubt or suspicion that you cannot wake up the next morning and hope in God once again cannot be from God. And the devil loves to use 99% truth, half truth, 1% truth. It doesn't matter. The devil is verbal. The devil is mental. The devil is smart. The devil works. And oftentimes, depression comes from when you believe the devil, not the God of truth and life, by his word. Depression can wreck you. Some of the Puritan authors were experts on this. You might call them morbid. But I recommend a book entitled Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. I don't know if that was Thomas Brooks or Watson. I'm not quite sure who the author. That escapes me right now. But that book basically details 40-some ways that the, de- that the devil um, tries to attack Christian believers. You and I, we can come up with maybe four. This is how spiritually sensitive and reflective and intentional they were about recognizing that's from the devil and then how to counter that. 40-something, go check it out. But please make no mistake. For a non-believing world, that neighbor, relative, or friend you love, the mission our church is on, one more for the gospel, that one of my friends would come to meet Jesus and become a member of his church. 
Do you know one of the most effective ways that gets in the way of your non-believing friend ever coming to Jesus? The devil will take out Christians and make you look and act so depressed, your non-believing friend will be like, I never want to become like that. Like, I would, why would I ever want to become like you? You are actually one of the most cynical, saddest, depressed people I've ever met. And some of that really might not be from God. It just might be the devil at work. Possible causes. These are possible causes. Physical condition. Loss or breakdown of community. Disappointments with God. Fourth, the devil. Fifth, last one. We said at the outset, there is no known sin to be confessed here. But if we were to say there might be a sin that the psalmist realizes at the end, it might be a big one. And it's a sin of unbelief. You see, why does a psalmist have to rouse himself by saying, hope in God, hope in God, hope in God? Why is he saying that? Because he doesn't believe it. It's hard for him to believe that. He's struggling with unbelief, which is why he has to come back at his heart again and again and again to rouse hope in God. He has to remind himself. He's got to recover. He's got to redo some things here. That might be a possible cause, unbelief. Let's get to the cures. Just a couple. Just a couple. Both of these cures have been personally tried and true. And they absolutely work. Please don't think when I say they absolutely work, they will work by tomorrow. They absolutely work in the good hands and timing and patience and wisdom of God. Here's the first. And here's what the psalmist learned. I just learned this from the psalmist. When he wrote verse 4, these things I remember as I Pour out my soul. Pour out my soul. First cure for depression. You got to learn how to pour out your soul. Pour out your heart to God in prayer. Pour. Pour. Not casually mentioned. Not a rudimentary prayer. Not just the routine. Not stoic, stale, controlled, even. Poured, poured out to God in prayer. Here's someone who is truly depressed, but he poured out his soul to God in prayer. Here's a spiritual principle. Please listen to me, my friend. Here's a spiritual principle. Even when you feel like you're getting nothing out of it, just do it. Especially if you're depressed. If especially if you're depressed. Listen again. Even if you feel like nothing good is coming out of it, don't stop. Because the psalmist is pursuing God like a panting deer. That deer is not going to stop. You know that deer... If that deer fails to get a source of water, the deer dies. The psalmist, likewise, is pursuing and doing something to get to the source of all of life. Or else, 
he dies. So it doesn't matter to him the immediate results, whether they look right or not. He has to get there eventually, or else his soul dies. Can I ask you about your prayer lives? Your prayer lives. Do you have a prayer life? Do you have a prayer life? I think our church is pretty good about teaching and preaching and doctrine and theology and wonderful. That does come first. God must speak first. But do you ever speak back to him? Do you pour out your soul? Is your prayer life results-oriented or is it relational? In your prayer life, are you just after immediacy or do you really seek intimacy? You see, if you have a non-existent or irregular prayer life today, that indicates you're just doing business with God. If you have no prayer life to speak of or it's absolutely haphazard, what that indicates and should show you, my friend, is you're just on business terms with God. You only go to God to get results or benefits. But if you do have a regular prayer life, that should indicate to you you're actually in love with God. Because you're coming to God because you find Him beautiful. Do you know what the psalmist is doing in his depression? Is even when he gets nothing out of it, he feels like nothing is happening, he still is going to pursue because God is beautiful. He knows God is true. That is the ultimate solution, answer to his soul. The analogy to physical training is just all too apparent and clear, is it not? For those of you who are physically fit, muscular, you're healthy right now. Let me ask you, physically, are you only going to train when you feel like it? In the long run, will that make you healthier and stronger and for, you know, fend off disease and middle age sagging? Physical training means you ought to regularly do it in disciplined fashion, no matter what you feel at that point. Because, oh, the payoff, the rewards are great. This is the same spiritually speaking. And I tell you as a pastor that please, when it comes to prayer life, when it comes to prayer life, regularly pouring out your soul to God, can I just ask you, this is like maybe the one time I'll ever say it. Don't think about it, just do it. Don't think about theological reasons or motivational issues. Oh, I thought we're a gospel church, so I should be filled with thanksgiving and love and gratitude when I do everything. Where's Jesus in the middle of this? No. Just do it. Just do it. You know why? Because when you're young in anything, you have to have basic disciplines for disciplines to become delights. When you're starting off anything new, it will feel foreign. It will feel like it doesn't do anything for you. But... The scriptures and all of Christian life experience will tell me your prayer life. Do you pour out your heart to God or do you just pour it online? Or you just pour it to your non-believing friend. You just pour it in gossip. You just pour it in bitterness. If you can pour out your soul and your heart to God in prayer all the way down to its depths on a regular basis. My friend, I assure you, it's better than a therapist. It's better than your spouse. It's better than a priest. For God himself heard the prayer of Psalm 42 in his depression. 
Let me encourage us. You can never desire God more than he desires you. A.W. Tozer, he would put it this way. Your, our pursuit of God is successful just because he is forever seeking to manif manifest himself to us. Your wanting to pour out in prayer is only effective and successful because God wants you. He wants you that much. Here's a second, last cure. Pour over the truth into your own heart. But here it's P-O-R-E. Pour over the truth into your own heart. This is why he says again and again, why are you cast down on my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Notice the way he's talking. It's argumentative, is it not? He's questioning. He's provoking. He's not passive and mild about this. He's taking his feelings, which we cannot create or command away at once, but he's refusing to make his feelings central. He wants God and his truth central, so he asks questions. He's interrogating himself. And he's probing, he's preaching, he's talking to himself. Why is he doing this? Because he wants the truth. He wants to pour over truth into his own heart because his heart is led astray. Singularly, this is the greatest blessing and practice I ever learned from the good doctor, Martin Lloyd-Jones. Because one of the principles throughout the entire book is you need to talk to yourself, not just let your feelings talk to you. You need to preach to yourself, not just let your feelings preach to you. You need to get a hold of yourself. Don't let your feelings just get a hold of you. That is the practice. That is one of the greatest cures. Because if and when you're able to do this, the truth of Christ, the truth of Christ shall set you free. The truth of Christ will have the peace of Christ prevail. I was talking to a good friend, one of our deacons. Say, so, Harold, this week I dare you not to talk about the Dodgers with depression. I laughed him off. I said, no, that was Tuesday. I'm not going to. Then, then Thursday, it's like inception. Oh, I have to. <laughs> Simple, clearest analogy. Here's our typical ways of dealing with depression as a Dodger fan. A, Dodgers, please play better. P please, please. Please, can you win it all next year? Can you win it in my lifetime for a second time? I was there when Kirk Gibson hit the home run in 88. I've been waiting 30 years. I'm a diehard fan. But you see, this approach to deal with depression is behavior-based, is it not? It's just performance-based. You better. You better win it all next year. It's behavior performance-based. Second approach that people will deal with depression, first is, I've done so much wrong, I better just do it better. Second is, I can do no wrong. Some of you are delusional Dodger fans. Dodgers can do no wrong. They're the best anyways. <laughs> They're better than the angels, which they are. But, whoa, we're the best team in the, in the world. That's delusional. They're not. They've proven they're not. They keep breaking our hearts that they're not. The second approach is they can do no wrong. You know, that second approach to yourself is just, love, just learn to love and accept yourself. That's a feelings-based approach. The other candidates and I are learning this from Tim Keller in his book, Center Church, how neither approach is actually going to really help you with depression. Because you know how my real depression can be cured. And I'm, you know, I'm joking here. I'm not really depressed. 
Last year I was, but this year I'm, I'm a better Christian. Do you know if I was really, truly devastated and depressed over the Dodgers? The only cure to that is not that the Dodgers need to play better, because even if they do, they can't win forever. And I assure you not, they probably won't win next year anyways. And the other approach is they can do no wrong and they're delusional. That is just, I need to lift up the veil and actually be in touch with reality. So how do I get cured of my depression over the Dodgers? The only way is if I dislodge and repent of the Dodgers being that important to me in my life. The only way my depression over the Dodgers is going to be exposed and cured is if the Dodgers aren't central to me anymore. And you see, whatever's central to you right now that is not named Jesus Christ will always take you down. Will never give you life. It'll rob your life. It'll never bring resurrection. It'll just bring killing. It'll only bring disappointment. It'll never bring redemption. Whatever is central to you, and if you're not able to pour over the truth of Christ and dislodge that, repent of that, depression itself will remain. Do you know how to do this? Do you have good preaching material to pour over like this? Do you know how you go about doing something like this? Do you say things like this ever? Are you a good preacher? The psalmist was, hope in God, hope in God, hope in God, my salvation and my God. Did you know you and I could preach at least like David? We have it right here in Psalm 42. Just put it into your own words. Sing it, memorize it, wrap it, do whatever it takes. You have David's sermon material as to how he poured over the truth into his heart so that he could get out of depression. Here we go. But did you know that you and I, we have way better preaching material than David? Did you know you can preach way better than David? Because here's what Jesus ultimately came to do with my depression. He came and he experienced the worst kind of thirst. He fell into depression unto his own death. He did cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The first time he says, God, instead of Father. And there when Jesus was given up, thirsting and depressed to death on my behalf, it was so that God the Father would never, never give up on you. When God the Father left Jesus, hung out to dry, it was so that God the Father could not fathomably ever leave you hung out to dry. The gospel is that Jesus himself was poured out so that you can be filled with Jesus when you pour yourself out to him. And if you're good at psalm singing, psalm praying, psalm preaching, you know Psalm 42 like the back of your hand, which you should if you really want to get out of depression. God will bless that. But I got even better material. Gospel singing, gospel praying, 
gospel preaching, gospel reciting of how precisely Jesus took my place. This is how God becomes palpable and real, front and central to you. This week I heard a sermon by a reverend, Dr. Charlie Dates. He spoke at a church planning conference for Redeemer City to City in Chicago. And as soon as he got up there, he had me at hello. He gave a humorous lesson for a largely white Asian educated crowd of African-American tradition in preaching and worship, how it's dialogical. He said, looking out today, I could already tell what kind of day this is going to be. So I need to give you a little quick bit of what I'm used to as an African-American preacher in my tradition. It's dialogical. It's where pulpit and pews engage. There's a chorus of sound. He said, it's rooted in a history of suffering. Where black men and women out on the southern fields while picking cotton would sing and holler gospel lyrics to the other side. And then the other side would holler back those same lyrics. And Charlie Day shared, that's how they made it through. That's how they made it through. Jesus in his spirit is hollering gospel at you. Do you holler back? Do you, know, do, you, do, you, do you ever do that? Do you holler back? Do you know how to do it? Do you keep doing it? Should you do it? Yeah. Hope in God. Hope in God. Hope in God, my salvation and my God. For Jesus rose from death. You can rise from yours. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your, the power and the preciousness of your truth that can be poured out into our hearts. Lord, I pray for every friend here, new or old, especially those who may not yet know Jesus. Would you bring, would you bring us to yourself and to see the one who came to thirst and die unto death so that he could take my thirst and all my pain and pour out himself and fill me up with him. Lord, pray for our church. God, that in this season of feelings that we go through, especially depression, Lord, give us hope. Raise our faces. Lift up our eyes. Elevate our hearts so that Christ would be central. And in him, all would be made well. Thank you. We love you, Jesus. We pray this to you in Jesus' name. Amen.